0: somebody likely had a concussion up front, that ran its course, but they continued to have symptoms for other reasons that we could label post-concussion syndrome if you'd like. And, And the main reason that they weren't getting better is they were still being treated as if they were concussed.
1: Welcome to the Heroic Minds Empower Series, supported by the Empower Foundation. My goal with this series is to further understand and simplify the latest research on how the brain works, how it is affected by injury, sleep, nutrition, stress, and more. I want to find out what the latest research tells us about how we can recover, maintain, or enhance our neurological health. What does the latest research even mean? How can we apply this information to our own lives, talking with clinicians, researchers, and those that have suffered from brain injuries, I plan to share these answers. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Empower series. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher. Now, Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher is a superstar sports neurologist. He opened the Sports Neurology Clinic at the Core Institute in Brighton, Michigan, after founding a similar clinic at the University of Michigan. Dr. Kutcher advises the NFL, NHL, college and high school teams in Michigan and nationally. Dr. Kutcher explains in this episode that the word concussion is overused and overdiagnosed, which leads to a long list of issues, both physical and social. Dr. Kutcher gives such great insight into why concussion itself is only a piece of the puzzle that should actually be referred to as athlete brain health. Dr. Kutcher even talks about pro athletes that he works with and how they have been misdiagnosed with a concussion and thrown into the concussion protocol that wasn't actually treating the issues that existed. Dr. Kutcher said that someone that doesn't have a concussion but is told they do may experience a placebo effect and start to feel concussion-like symptoms. All this and more in this Empower series episode. Remember to check out empower.ca, the Empower Foundation at empwr.ca. A lot of amazing things going on. Check out our social media. We're sharing all the bits and pieces from these episodes in easy to digest, easy to share format on social media. So you can read, you can learn, and you can share it with friends, family, teammates, teachers, So on and so forth. We want to continue to share these powerful messages, continue to share what we're learning right now about concussion and head injury, not only in sport, but in life and how we can get back to ourselves faster, better, stronger. And this is a perfect example, a perfect episode that maybe it's not a concussion. So again, I encourage you to check out empower.ca, the Empower Foundation. We're doing a lot of cool things. And I'm having a lot of fun working with everyone on the board, but also everyone that I get to sit down and chat with about concussion. Alrighty, here we go. Intriguing part on the phone the other day of our conversation was the term concussion to athlete brain health. And I wondered, I now know you know why that's so important, but I wondered if you could explain what the issue is with just calling something a concussion or, or having concussion as the umbrella word, which maybe it shouldn't be.
0: Yeah, that's a great place to start, Ben. Because um, you know, concussion—the term is used uh, a lot, and it's used, uh, frankly, a lot more incorrectly than correctly in in the world. And it has a very specific medical meaning and definition. Uh, and that is, it is a transient physiological state. So it's an injury to the brain. Yes, that is brought on by you know a force applied to the brain. Um, But that injury is a is an injury of function and not structure and it is one that is transient lasting typically several days uh, up to two or three weeks perhaps um, And resolves every single time leaving no change or um, long-term Damage to the brain at all the problem is that people use the term concussion to mean all sorts of other stuff which are you know are also possible outcomes of hitting your head, so um, you know, for example, we think about some of the, lo- the possible long-term health difficulties um, from repetitive hits. That's a completely different line of pathology, a completely different line of injury that occurs to the brain when the brain experiences repetitive forces over time, whether a concussion occurred or not. And and to me, that that's that's the place to start because that's one of the biggest misconceptions. And you know, what that leads to, it leads to patients, parents of patients, um, everybody sort of equating concussion, the injury that occurs relatively frequently in, in life in general, not only sports, with these long-term, you know, sort of inappropriate, negative uh, future potential risks and concerns that ends up really, really scaring people when they, they don't really need to be scared of concussion itself
1: it's so interesting to th- to even think about it that way because uh, the common theme with concussion is you have all these other assumptions with it that then there's the instant connection to cte is is what's in the media today a lot and so now that concussion has become cte and concussion has become xy and z and i think separating those two is is really important now we we also kind of from that topic we moved into chatting about um Subconcussive blows to the head, and how that's different, and how that can add up to certain things, but it can also maybe not add up to anything. And I guess that we have to be aware that everyone's different, and these concussions are affecting people differently, and they shouldn't be assumed that this is the only outcome. Every, you know, everyone's going to have CTE, and, and we know some of the re- research with that is even skewed. But I think if you could dive into that that idea that subconcussive blows versus concussive blows, the differences, and what we we're starting to know today. Yeah, sure thing, Ben. That's um, a hugely important topic. So if we look at where we are
0: today versus, let's say, 15 years ago, um, we we now have an understanding that there are s- certain individuals or a percentage of, of people that play sports or, or have some repetitive exposure to contact impact forces, maybe through the military first responding or, or some other um, activity. There's a certain percentage of those people that will have – a neurodegenerative problem later in life that you know, with a careful neurological history and consideration of other factors, you could say, "Yep, I think this is related to your history of trauma." That is a relatively newer concept in medicine in general. Um, yes, it was described back in the nineteen twenties, and you hear about you know the early early uh, description of boxers, especially that were um, having these problems. That was that was a, a small case series of people, you know, 100 years ago. Um, what we know now is is much more focused on pathology, meaning what we understand when we look at the brain. And we look at the tissue um, under a microscope, um, you know, after somebody's had a lifetime of these things. And the reality is that while it does occur, um, it does not occur nearly to the frequency that uh, I think the general public believes it does, um, or how it is referred to in the media or how it is referred to, you know, in in, in sort of sports worlds as if you play this sport long enough, you will have this problem. That's just not true. Um, The majority of people that that play contact sports, play collision sports, and play them for many, many years, the majority of people are just fine. Um, That has been completely lost in this conversation. So yes, it's a problem. Yes, we need to monitor for it. Uh, do whatever we can to minimize the risk for sure. Um, but it does not um, uh, change the fact that, no, our sports are more safe than not um, if we look at it from a population perspective.
1: And so when we're talking from the idea of a sub-concussive blow, I guess you could say, are there instances where, and maybe it doesn't lead to these, the long-term damage that the media kind of portrays, can there be subconcussive blows or contact that causes similar symptoms or similar short-term issues to a concussion that is diagnosed and dealt with?
0: So um, that, that that's just another huge area to discuss because in, in sports medicine today, you know, concussion has become this this issue that is so pervasive and something that everybody is concerned about, and there are policies and protocols and. You look across whatever level of sport, right? It's out there. So what has happened is basically protocols have replaced, in my experience, um, actual neurological care. So if you have a, um, a patient who happens to play sports, they have a headache after a practice or after a game or, or some symptom, it's almost just the default setting to put them in the concussion protocol, right? And, and let the protocol take care of them. We've got this series of steps that we're going to do. This is how we approach concussion, and therefore we are doing this accurately. Well, I've never met uh, a patient who can be managed via a piece of paper (laughs) with with, with words written in a protocol, um, because the reality is the first thing, what you refer to is is needing to develop a neurological differential diagnosis. right? So what are all the possible um, mechanisms after a hit that can lead to any of these symptoms. And there are more than just concussion. And so it is very, very common these days that concussions are being diagnosed uh, inappropriately. So there are a lot of false positives. I think the false positive rate is going up for the very reason that if you're an athletic trainer, a physio, or if you're a a physician and you know, you have this policy, this protocol you have to follow, well, you're just going to put the person in there instead of actually thinking about what could be going on. And then the downstream effect of that, and, and as an elite athlete yourself, you probably, you know, can see how this would happen. Well, if you have situations where you're going through some kind of sporting event, you have a hit, um, you know, you have some symptoms, but you're like, man, that wasn't a hard hit to my brain. I really, you know, tweaked my neck a little bit more or cut my cheek or I've got something else going on. You, you kind of have a feeling as, as the patient, whether you're concussed or not, um, you, you get diagnosed with concussion and you're like, I guess that's right. Or maybe it's not right. I don't know. And the more that you're put into the protocol without sort of actual thought going into it, then you get gun shy, right? And then you're, you're going to not tell people when you have symptoms because every time you tell them you have anything, you're, you're thrown into the protocol um, when it's inappropriate. So it ends up um, driving patients away from early reporting of symptoms, frankly, because they just don't trust That the system is set up to take care of them in a comprehensive way
1: right and so then going off of that i think it leads perfectly into and you had said it in and i put it in quotations in my notes because it's so powerful was athlete brain health instead of concussion so going off of what you just said it could be a variety of other things what is the power of of calling it athlete brain health and i guess what would be under that umbrella if you could sum it up i guess
0: Sure. Well, the first thing that that gives us, uh, it allows us to talk about the issues that we just did regarding the concussion diagnosis. So athlete brain health would say, yep, concussion is certainly a possible explanation for the symptoms that are occurring in this setting after a hit. But let's look at the rest of the brain health and make sure that we're not missing things like migraine, headache, um, like peripheral nerves, the nerves in your head and neck feeding. Um, you know, pain signals that are headache related, attention issues, sleep issues, mood issues, all of these things um, also encompass that concept of athlete brain health that should be applied in real time when you are considering the diagnosis of concussion. But I think more importantly, what athlete brain health means um, and how we should start using it is the whole spectrum across the lifespan, right? So it is uh, as much about what do sports and athletics and athletic activities mean for development? As as a kid, when you're when you're developing and your brain is wiring together, you know, the activities that you do have a, have a lot to say about the kind of kind of person you become later in life. So understanding that aspect of athlete and brain health, the positives of playing sports, um, the ages of which it's appropriate to play certain sports, we need to understand that much more uh, comprehensively. Looking at these issues I mentioned of migraine and attention, well, those things can affect how you perform athletically, academically, socially, um, and sports can have an influence on those things, right? So um, no question that, that frequent exercise and especially complex exercise, uh, like we see in a lot of our popular sports, is really good at treating anxiety, really good at treating mood issues and sleep issues, so understanding that. The concussion part we talked about, then you expand to post-concussion syndrome, understanding what that is, that that's different than a long concussion, completely different pathophysiology. Taking that one step further and looking at the long-term consequences, whether you are referring to the specific pathological finding called CTE or whether you're talking about other potential long-term problems that come from repetitive hits owning that understanding that no that you know we we need to know kind of what are the long-term consequences of the the things that we do also looking at mental health right so just just the the very concept of like i mentioned these things you know playing sports kind of a positive effect on mood but um what about that transition from sport like when you stop playing sports whether it's you know peewee hockey or elite hockey or or any other level, when you transition out of a sport that's been a part of your life that has helped create who you are, how your brain is wired, that is a significant um, time in your life when you're at risk for, for mood disorders. Um, so to me, I mean, yeah, concussions are important. Um, no question. They, you know, I, as long as I'm a practicing medicine, um, they, they've been an issue, you know, more, more recently, obviously, but uh, to me, they're not, they're not the main issue. Uh, concussions, like I mentioned before, are temporary, transient injuries. It's the long-term brain health. It's the overall brain health. Understanding that big equation um, of risks and benefits. Uh, to me, that's the most important thing we have to focus on.
1: I just I love that so much because it normalizes. Concussion amongst all these other issues that are a little bit taboo as well right now. And if you hold on mental health as well, and even the mental health that comes with the identity in sport and the career identity in sport and so many other pieces to the athletic world that need some more light shown on them i think we get caught up in the media of these things and and have us however the media plays them out that every athlete's super happy and rich and successful and there's so many other things going on mentally in an athlete's mind and in the athlete's life that i think athlete brain health is just such a great uh, a great word for it and i think again it it breaks down the barriers and says yeah a concussion may be one piece of this but then there's the other side of the other Forty sides to this coin that that all need a little bit of attention. So I I really like that, and I've already started using it. So I think that's, oh, great. I think that's phenomenal. Uh, now uh, another piece to that is different types of athletes in different sports. I think it's a topic I've really never shown a light on because I'm from the hockey world, and and I wouldn't necessarily even my connections to people I've supported through their concussion just being there for as a peer. Not not uh, not any medical advice, but as appeared to be there for support, it's been from the hockey world. Now you would see and know of people that have gone through concussion in many other sports. Are there differences? do you have di- are there different approaches or different pressures from different athletes that you have seen in your work and and how concerns might be different, et cetera, that that is different from a hockey player, say, a swimmer, baseball player, soccer player, et cetera?
0: Yeah, Ben, that's a fantastic question because, you know, at at one level, it it doesn't matter because, you know, brains are brains. And whether the injury occurs, you know, um, because you got driven into the glass or injury occurs from some other mechanism in a different sport, you know, the brain itself, the tissue of the brain is going to respond to the force, the biomechanical force that you experienced. So at one level, there is a commonality to the physiology and to the problems that we're talking about. But beyond that, uh, there become many things that sort of define each patient's experience. You know, it starts with what is the nature of the sport that they play and the things athletically that they are being asked to do or that they, you know, do as part of their sport. And what does that mean for diagnosis and recovery? For example, um, if you play a sport like hockey, compare that to um a sport that is more uh, kind of a short burst of activity, American football, for example, right? So six seconds at a time, um, you, you know, something happens. <laughs> you have a, a cognitive uh, task that you have to attend to, a physical task that you have to attend to, but it's six seconds. Stop, stop, Stick a moment, you know, let's, let's get our next play call and keep going versus hockey, lacrosse, basketball, soccer, sports that are more fluid and dynamic. Um, brains that play those sports have a much uh, wider bandwidth for processing constant visual information that's complex. And so, you know, their injury may look a little different, simply by the nature of the sport they play. Um, and the return process should certainly uh, reflect that. So you want to challenge the brains of, of these individuals in the ways that, that their brains, um, you know, have developed to play the sport. Looking at the sports themselves is another thing. Um, you know, very, very, uh, critical difference. When did the concussions occur practice versus gameplay? Um, if it's a contact sport, how many hits are we talking? And what is the sort of, uh, temporal concentration of those hits? Um, understanding the rhythm of a season, the rhythm of a career, um, you know, sleep issues, travel issues. I mean, there's so many things involved when it gets to the actual management of concussion, post-concussion syndrome and long-term brain health um, that really are sports specific. Uh, and you, you have to know the sports to kind of really dive into it, you know, and you kind of know those differences. And then it's really a fascinating difference that I have noticed, um, are the individuals that go into the sports and yeah, you know, there's, there's going to be part of it that is sports will, you know, select certain individual personality types and obviously physical types to play them, but also growing up playing a sport, um, I think no question will sort of drive you in a certain personality direction, and so understanding um, you know how those, those things play out also is incredibly important.
1: Again, another such a healthy view on on this complex topic. With with athletes, I wonder, and and seeing so many different athletes from different sports, have you in your own work seen any type of of trend in in recovery or type type of issues that come from different sports? Are they and is there a reason for that? Maybe it's just heading the ball in soccer. What is there a, a some glaring trends that that you might be aware of in the work that you do? I would say a, a few
0: things come to mind. Um, one is uh, if you look at data across sort of the classic team sports that have been followed: hockey, football, soccer. The the duration of time missed with a concussion, as as documented by the medical records, so you know, so time from hit uh, or or diagnosis to cleared to return to participation without restriction, that has, has gone up and continues to go up over time. Um, it's and by sport it's different, and I my my observation has been that the more I would say intense. Media policy and political pressure a sport is under the longer those durations are getting, uh-huh. and you can even say you can even say that within the level of the sport too. So in other words, um, looking at youth hockey, you know, versus juniors, and going up the ranks there, like, um, and, and I think it, it frankly comes from. Uh, just all of the hoops that people have to jump through and the sort of natural defensive posture um, that the medical staffs have had to take regarding concussion and then misdiagnosis and misunderstanding of symptoms when they're not actually related to concussion anymore. Um, There's just such a reaction to the defensive that you end up, people are, are staying out longer than they should. Now, is that a bad thing? You would say on on par. No, I mean, I definitely want. I'd rather my my patients um, to be out longer than than necessary, if, rather than shorter than necessary. But at some point, it does start, you know, creating a negative effect that has a long lasting and I would say, you know, very significant uh, uh, imprint on, on how sports medicine is practiced. And So that is something that um uh you know we do see from sport to sport being being different uh but there are a lot of other examples of kind of that uh, that sport difference um that really comes down to more about the how how the patients are managed more than the actual injuries themselves
1: and have you seen certain athletes uh, a trend of going into that personality side of things? And this is more just interest sake. Is there a trend of of certain athletes having because of their uh, physical? I would say probably purely physical, maybe a little bit of personality too. But their physical, if someone with more muscle has that shown signs of anything, or or does that turn into a physiological, uh, mental thing? I guess in in a sense of. You know if there's a, someone that's in hockey are they more likely to get back into the gym sooner? Is that a personality thing is Is it a physical thing? Are there any trends that way that that may be able to slightly predict uh, time away from sport or or recovery time
0: I wouldn't say it's it's a physical thing uh, per se Ben it's certainly not size based or or that type of thing it, it's It is more mental and and I think the people that, that get back sooner um tend to be patients who are introspective, um, good at sort of monitoring how they feel, are good communicators. So in other words, you know, the, the medical staff who's taking care of you, you know, the vast majority of information they are using to manage an injury like this is reporting of symptoms. Um, and so, you know, that that's, that's where sort of yeah, it's not. It's not about being honest. I don't want. I don't want to say that because I think that. I think athletes get get far too often criticized for not telling the truth and hiding their injuries, and and I think that's way overblown. For me, it's 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 about having trust and good communication, and and that goes both ways, right? That goes from the from the athlete to the medical staff, and 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 back again. Um. So people that are introspective, good communicators, and then frankly. I would say not too introspective so in other words you know hyper uh you're hyper vigilant um about every little symptom uh, but you do have a good sort of sense of um you know how you're feeling today and putting that in perspective versus some of the symptoms that that you're experiencing that, that you know frankly you may have experienced when you weren't injured two months ago but nobody asked you about them right. um you know as an aside if you look at this is one of the Things i tell every single one of my patients that comes comes through our clinic here um if you look at the symptom checklist on the scat form right the sports concussion assessment tool scat form that everybody uses you know nhl's got their ipad app everybody's got their app looking at that symptom checklist every single one of those symptoms occur in migraine hmm. every single one of them as well as other headache syndromes and and, and brain related diseases and diagnoses you get the sense though that like, Hey, if you got one of these things, it, look, it's the concussion checklist. So I have a concussion. Um, and that's what I mean about, you know, our level of, of care cannot be a symptom checklist. It cannot be fill in this, these, these bubble numbers and give me a one through six. And I'm going to spit out, you know, uh, a little, you know, sort of answer concussed. Yes or no, and that's how these things are treated. Um, is really have to get into a well, why you're having these symptoms and what is the trend band and what do you typically feel like and what would we expect if you had an exercise for four weeks and it put you on a stationary bike, right? Like right. these are things that all, all require a very detailed, and I would say personal level of care.
1: And do you think there's a efficient way of doing that today without like what would be an ulterior to um, to doing that? Is there another option that might be almost as efficient and i know they i have i would make the assumption and i could be wrong that the test is is the way it is because it's easy to to give it can be done on the sideline so on and so forth is there or do you even practice something or does it need do we need to push the needle a little bit on how we do care on the sidelines and how we do run those tests in an efficient way to know if someone is able to get back into the game or not or is it clear or you do you follow more of a black and white if there's a chance we pull them out kind of thing
0: yeah, so I think, and I'll speak very frankly here, um, you know, one of the things we have to do is realize that every tool that's used on a, on a sideline or, or sporting a situation or even in a sports medicine clinic, whether it's the SCAT form symptom checklist we talked about or some balance test or eye movement test or even computerized neuropsychological testing, any of these things, right, are, are just data points that are collected um, at the end of the day, the level of care that is provided is dependent upon who's using those things. Hmm. And is there a role for a symptom checklist? Sure. It's a, the role is, you know, a, a quick screen by somebody to make sure you're not going to forget anything when you take a history. But you have to sit down and you have to take a history. Doing a neurological history is something that requires a lot of effort, a lot of um, um, practice, expertise. And I would say the main problem we have in sports medicine today is we don't have the right people in place who are trained and have the experience to put all these things together and really come up with a comprehensive neurological decision in real time. Totally doable. It's just we haven't focused on it we've tried to replace a neurological thought process with protocols and what ends up happening, um, any, you know, we have patients that roll through here at every level, NHL first line centers who have missed weeks during a season, right? Um, with concussion like symptoms and they're in the concussion protocol. And then when we come, and we do a history, we sit down and talk to them, we look at video, turns out they were never concussed in the first place. They had headaches for other reasons, but when they finally brought symptoms to somebody's attention, they did a symptom checklist, you know, and then concussion was diagnosed, and there you go. And that's, how, that's, right. how you, that's how you end up you know, being out for several weeks and didn't have to be
1: and then and then you're in the wheel too of now and you're hiding from the media because of the concussion word and now the concussions painted with a certain brush and then now people think you've had sustained a second concussion when maybe you haven't maybe it was something else that just still hasn't been dealt with and um, i think that's 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 exactly
0: right and then you become you become one of the concussion guys right like you know and that that, that affects career careers and um, personal lives as well so
1: right Right. I mean, I know this is, this wouldn't be something we dive into, but I, I also wonder if you assume what's the placebo effect of that too, right? When someone says, oh, you have a concussion. Now you're looking for symptoms and do you start to feel things you maybe otherwise wouldn't if someone would have said, no, you don't have a concussion. This is the issue.
0: Oh, you, abs- you absolutely do. Yeah. That, 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 that happens. And that actually has been shown in really good research. If you start um, giving people like these symptom checklists and just start giving them to them every day, um that you you watch symptoms sort of develop in people just by sort of the process of them um thinking about it thinking about it thinking about it and then worrying about it and why you asking me and all these things become
1: critical um and there's no question that that process is a symptom driver unfortunate for those that may go through that and and spend and careers could could be affected because of it right i think that's why we have these conversations and want to keep educating? I would I would hate for someone's career to be affected and and income and can as we know can can lead people down a dark path. So you also had another awesome concept idea um, in regards to the international consensus statement and your approach to changes that may be able to be made in regards to how we approach concussion and why maybe we should approach it differently from a protocol. And I know we've, we've I think we're beating around the bush a little bit, but the, the realities of what could change in how we put these protocols in place and why they need to be changed and why they're a little bit stale right now.
0: Yeah, I think you know, one of the bigger problems we have when you look at the care that is provided, you know, especially at the highest levels, is they are based on a series of consensus documents and efforts uh, of which, in full disclosure, I've been part of, um, that are really designed to answer questions that are relevant to the leagues or to the teams, and rather than to the patients. So the pr- perspective matters um, a lot in, in how you frame these questions, and therefore the answers you come up with, and and the solutions. So, for example, you know, if I am a professional sports team and I'm you know part of a league that has a policy and a protocol. Uh, I'm going to point to this international consensus document that that's been updated every four years for the last 20 or so as to, you nope, know, this this is what our protocol should be. This is what our policy should be. And that defines, um, a lot of what you see to the vast majority of what you see in, in the league sports and how concussion is managed. Completely different question. If I'm asking, well, I'm a player. Um, What's best for me to get through my career with a healthy brain? Um, th- those types of questions mm-hmm. are not, haven't been asked at that level. Um, that's, I think that's got to change, and that will change. Um, you know, we, We've actually started, me and, me and some other experts have started uh, an effort, a new organization to help fill in that gap as well as many others by really saying, look, no, um, what's most important for us as, as, as care providers uh, is, is our patients brain health uh, and therefore we are going to use patients as part of our our working groups and our the structure of our organization to make sure that we're asking the right questions to make sure that we're um, you know even using the light language and, and really you know communicating effectively uh, so that we can have you know the, the best possible care provided across the spectrum um, that That's that's what our patients deserve and, and, and right now that, that's not happening.
1: I feel like the magic with that is that the more involved you have the patient, the more information you're basically collecting at the same time. So while you're helping them, you're also collecting what, what what type of symptoms did they have? How did they sustain the injury? And now you put that in your bank and then you collect the next person that comes in, the details on their concussion, and now you start to find some trends.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no question that that's got to be our focus, especially when we're looking at the long term or or the lar- the larger topic of athlete brain health, right? The the whole spectrum uh, of of that category and, and the whole lifespan. I mean, we can't we we have to stop treating you know these patients as 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 injuries. You no, know, I'm treating a concussion. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is this is sort of one of the major you know depersonalization problems in this area as is, is people are treated you know um, like, like uh, as as a widget and a protocol instead of um as a complex human being with uh you know so many factors and variables and personal and family histories and experiences and exposures that all play into uh, their health
1: i i have to ask and i don't know if you have an answer and if you can give an anonymous story uh, i just wonder if you have any Really clear-cut examples of, of someone you've seen that thought they had a concussion for a long period of time, and then found out it was X, Y, or B. It was something else. And, um, and the reason I bring that up is I had Amanda Castle on the other um, series on this podcast, telling her concussion story and how she went to see a specialist in in the Pittsburgh area and had a, she dealt with concussion symptoms for a while and. I hear continued stories where someone goes to see a specialist and they try something they've never tried. And all of a sudden, you know, two years of of agony and and struggle with the concussion symptoms and they're gone in two weeks and they're back to full health and full strength. And it's just, I think it's really empowering for people. I personally love those stories. I wondered if you had any uh, that you could share that, you dealt with someone and we found out it wasn't a concussion. It was this, and they got back to their, their normal life. Well,
0: I think there are, there are two scenarios. Um, one, I think the one that you described where somebody likely had a concussion upfront, um, that ran its course, but they continued to have symptoms for other reasons that we could label post-concussion syndrome if you'd like. Um, and, and the main reason that they weren't getting better is they were still being treated as if they were concussed. Right. So, it's, it's now four weeks, six weeks, two months, six months later, and symptoms are something to be avoided. Symptoms, you know, uh, you're still injured is, is the main construct with which care is provided. You're never going to get better if that's the case. So whatever the modality was or the treatment plan that sort of turned that case around, and like you said, in two weeks you're better, the one commonality is that person was not treated as if they were concussed. Somebody took the time to look at them as a complete individual and look at that post concussion syndrome concept. So that's, that's one whole, um, I think category of patient that frankly we see her every day. No, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, right now in clinic, as we speak, um, I have actually two Canadians in clinic. Uh, one is a, uh, a elite skier. Um, who's now an elite skiing coach, um, who has had symptoms that he believes have, have been from concussion since 2013. Um, I have an NHL player here in clinic today um, who's just had chronic symptoms for the past several months. Um, he did have a, a concussion that that sort of, you know, sort of created this situation, but um, he's no longer in concussion, but he's still having symptoms. And of course, camp is coming up here in a few weeks. And, this is literally an everyday occurrence. Um, so I like I can <laughs> I can I think of a story from this morning. You know, it's like it's it's that common. Um, the other category though are people who were never concussed in the first place, right? And that's something that I think used to be pretty rare, but is now becoming uh, more common. And I, I I I won't use names, but um, you know, there there was an individual again, an NHL player happened to be. I mean, we see folks in all sports, but the one I'm thinking of cause I'm talking to a hockey guy came to mind. Um, so he, uh, yeah, he missed eight weeks. Um, and he was, uh, I'll say a, a larger individual who, who, um, probably has found himself off his skates maybe twice in a 12 year career. Right. He's, he's like, you're not, you're not taking him off his skates. He's just, you know, solid, solid, solid skater, big guy. Um, and you know, he had, development of symptoms sort of over time a little bit and uh you know kind of fought through it for a couple of weeks brought to the team's attention then you you go back and you look at uh you go you go back and try to find the hits right what what, what game was it that caused these symptoms you're having so then you go back and you go and you go and you go and finally you see a hit well gosh there's this one time you actually got you know kind of got a surprise and and and, you ended up on your butt like that must have been it when you look at the video, you're like, as a hockey guy, you're like, no, like that the brain didn't really experience much force there, but, but still they went back and found the smoking gun, put him in the protocol. Um, and there, and there he sits not getting better because he didn't have a concussion. Frankly, that's one of the reasons why he didn't get better. Um, and he just kind of stayed there and walled that thing for like eight weeks. Um, so that that's more and more common. Um, I, you know, in, in, I probably see that, um, at, at the elite level, we're seeing that probably once a week or so, where somebody just assumed they were concussed, or, or you know that was the the outcome. When you, when you actually do a careful history, look at video, no, there wasn't hardly any suspicion that a concussion occurred.
1: Wow, I've never heard it that way. The, the looking for the smoking gun to then to then draw that it was a concussion before you even know when you've done all the tests, and and someone could clearly not be concussed yet the smallest smoking gun, we might as well assume just to be sure, which I guess without an MRI, which doesn't even show concussion, but without further, I guess it's a safe assumption, but to a certain extent. And I know we talked with Dr. Michael Hutchison, who you know very well, and he had talked about that as well, that there's a certain point where, okay, now it's time to try something else. It's time to pivot. And so many people get stuck thinking they can't pivot and move on to the next thing, or push their body yet because they're, uh, and I, I'm quote, putting quotations up right now, still have concussion, and still in the old, right. the old trends of don't do anything till the symptoms are gone, et cetera, et cetera. So again, just such another valuable, valuable viewpoint on things. Jumping over to a little bit of a different topic, in in prediction of concussion, and this is. On this podcast, I also love, as much as we love to talk about what we do know and what we're learning, I think it's also extremely valuable to talk about what we might not know or what we're close to knowing, but we're not quite there yet. And when it comes to predicting severity of concussions, there was a paper I looked up and I saw your involvement in the paper. And it has to do with predicting concussion with biomechanic variables. And if we are able to do that, can we look at an athlete, at a human and predict severity of concussion. Is that possible? What do we know in that space?
0: Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there because you know, the first thing is we have to be careful whether we are, are defining concussion, uh, the injury that occurs or the symptoms that are produced. Uh, so two different things. And, and whenever I use the word concussion, you know, uh, to me that that's the injury. So brain experiences force, um, you know, the, the force interferes with the brain's function and you have a physiological state that typically lasts, like we talked about before, you know, several days to a week or two. Um, so that's that's the injury part of it. Now, what symptoms are produced is quite variable from person to person and uh, every individual has sort of their own set point for how much injury it takes to create symptoms. And think about that for a sec because that that sort of makes the question you asked incredibly hard to, to, uh, to sort of look, because it's, so in other words, if, if we have accelerometer studies where, and we, you know, plenty of people have looked at, you know, forces experienced in hockey and football and soccer and, and other sports, and then look at concussion diagnoses and say, okay, like, you know, this, these people experienced forces up to 50 G's and didn't have a concussion. Well, they didn't produce symptoms, right? That's a, that's a different, it's a different construct altogether. Were they injured is a, you know, it's a completely different um, line, line of thinking. So I think the answer, practically speaking, meaning, you know, if we had a series of accelerometer mouth guards or helmets or whatever, you know, in our, in our PB hockey kids, um, you know, would we be able to say this, this level of force means, you know, you're going to get symptoms or not? No, that, that's something that's going to be so individualized from person to person. I do think that over time, as research continues, we will begin to understand more about the brain to the point where we understand that symptoms aside, the physiological state of concussion is absolutely sort of dose response, you know, affected by impact force. So, you know, up, up to 10 G's, you're, you know, that's not enough to cause the physiological injury, but that kind of thing, I think we will get there. Um, but certainly today, as you look around medical science, we're we're not that close.
1: Wow. And that would, I guess, also dive into different ages, different, and then you can pull in all those other variables that would make it difficult. The, the One thing that jumped into my mind, though, was if we had that type of information, it might help with this. When do we put kids into sports issue or contact sports? Sorry. When is the right time? At what point are they, is their weight, uh, average weight and speed of sport? Uh, at risk or more at risk or less at risk and could see the value in that. Is that an area of, I guess, is that an area that you're interested in pursuing? Are there areas close to your heart that you're not that far away from diving into research wise or something that you're trying to answer that hasn't been answered yet?
0: Oh yes, for sure. And actually that, that very question in hockey is something that, that is very close to my heart. Um, growing up playing hockey and understanding, you know, I grew up in the seventies playing and, um, you know, we hit as soon as we could skate, we were hitting, um, And I, you know, I I know, and you know, as a hockey player, that a large part of being successful is knowing how not to get hit, meaning knowing where everybody is on the ice, um, you know, keeping track of everybody that you can't see right in front of you. Um, And so you learn skills, you learn how to play a sport in a certain way if getting hit is a risk, right? So if we don't hit until a certain age, there's probably benefit to that from, you know, are the kids consistently strong enough and athletic enough and, and all those kinds of things? Um, so the, so you're, you're gaining some safety from that perspective. But depending on the sport, you may be putting kids behind and say, okay, now you're, you know, you're, you're 14, 15, 16, whatever age you want to draw in the, in the sand and say, now you can hit. Well, I've spent the last 10 years not worrying about that. And so now I'm going to go, you know, right up the middle and forget about this back-checking winger right, who's, 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 who's going to come and clip me, you know, if I, if I, if I uh, swing to the left, whatever, like that kind of. So to me, that's, that's incredibly important, understanding not only not only the physiology of the brain and the injuries that go on, but the nature of the sports and what it takes to play the sport safely um, are all critical, critical questions. Um, in a general sense, though, whether it's hockey, soccer, football, any, any contact or collision sport, the, the main factor as far as when do you start hitting has to be, sort of um athleticism in size. Meaning um when when kids start developing enough speed and enough mass to create forces that are that are injurious, um we need them to be sort of consistent. Meaning we, you know, think about, you know, your average 12-year-old kid, yeah, okay, there's gonna be an average, but there's gonna be the 120-pound 12-year-old kid who's going to be the 60-pound 12-year-old kid. And they're both out there playing hockey, right? So keeping track of of the physics behind the, behind the patients, I think, is super important. Um, and then the other part really is, yeah, the concussion threshold is important. But again, for me, it's that long-term brain health, right? So there have been some studies looking at, for example, first exposure to American football as a predictor for – time of first exposure as a predictor for sort of neurocognitive problems later in life and there have been very conflicting data published and, and it's actually a very telling I think um, lesson that one study that looked at you know if you played you started playing football at a certain age I think it was before age 13 um, you had a higher risk of having some you know neurocognitive measured differences you know when you're 40 or whatever after you played in the NFL so um, linking that together, and that and that that study is well published, well known, and you know had a, a couple dozen, few dozen or so patients in it. Um, that study, and then there was one more recently, actually from Carnegie Mellon, that had kind of similar numbers to it. They get all the press. New York Times story on it a couple days ago. Um, you know there have been studies that have far more number of patients, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients that haven't shown those changes, and you don't hear about them. And, and as a scientist, I'm not surprised at all because this research is difficult to do because of the heterogeneity of the population and the injuries and the things that we're collecting. Um, but what is super frustrating is only one side of that story is ever told in the media and out to the public. And so you get the perception that, oh my gosh, our sports are unsafe. But if you look at all the data, that, you cannot make that conclusion. But in in a general sense, um, media outlets that are looking to and individuals who are looking to uh, you know feed a narrative that either brings attention to themselves or creates clicks or you know whatever sort of measure of monetary success you want to define, they're not going to tell that second story. They're going to tell the first one, right? That oh my gosh, sports are hurting us. Sports are hurting us. That's you know that that's a story that grabs attention right um the stories that hey you know what um nope everything kind of is a wash <laughs> like <laughs> i can't make a movie about that yeah, right? exactly. i can't make a movie i can't like i'm not i'm not gonna like write a book and like have, have this huge success based on like like common sense it's got to be something that's shocking yeah um and i don't know if you um read the book by meryl uh meryl hodge no do you, do you know meryl so you know uh i, I would recommend that book. Um, it's called Brainwashed. Uh, Merrill, um, former NFL player and um, I forget which network he's on these days, but he's a commentator. Okay. Uh, wrote a book with a neuropathologist, actually a neuropathologist from Boston University, or at least the VA there, um, that basically tells a completely different CTE story. Um, wow. Now, is it accurate? Is, is it the reality? I mean, that's not my point. The point is that this is a big name guy, Hall of Fame player, National USA Network football commentator, wrote a really well written book. I mean, it's well written, well cited, you know, um, that tells the exact opposite story, and hardly anybody's heard of it. Narrative. It doesn't it doesn't tell the story that people want to hear. Now I'm waiting for the day, and I'm starting to see a little bit of this out there, um, where uh, you know, standing up and and sometimes I get that myself because I don't. I try really hard. Look, I work for my patients every day. Like that's all I care about. I have patients that walk in here. who have CT. Absolutely. Like I want to do whatever I can to help them. I'm not going to stake, you know, there's not enough science to, you know, say over here on the side, like, yeah, you know, see, there's no, not a problem over here. Like, yep. It's the biggest problem in the world. Both sides of that are absolutely wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, you see, what gets published and what isn't and what i'm starting to see is when common sense becomes the shocking part right it's like wait a second you mean this this isn't the end of the world when that becomes something that you know that will grab people's attention um that's when we'll see sort of the pendulum shift
1: back to what i would say it's common sense um I'm waiting for it. We'll see. In conclusion, it's cool to to know that we were we were actually at the big house, my team where we played the, the hockey team. We we're there for an exhibition game, but we went to the football game the day before. Being involved in a in a school like that and a program like that. What would you give someone listening right now, whether they're on the sidelines as a parent, as a therapist, the first things to think of when someone has a concussion? what's the the mindset people should should get into, or what is the first thing they should do, et cetera, that you could empower those people with? What would be your your advice? Wow, so
0: first thing I would say, um, you know during a sporting event itself um, or practice or any situation like that, um, the role of a coach, parent, teammate. Uh, position athletic trainer is not to diagnose concussion yes or no after a hit. The role is to triage for safety. Let the diagnosis clarify itself over time. So, I think that's a, that's a really important thing to keep in mind, especially when you, if you're parents and you're like you know dealing with coaches and athletic trainers or or your own kids like, you know, is he concussed or not? Yes or no is not the right question to ask in the heat of a game or or a practice. It's am I suspicious enough that I want to, um, you know, protect this person who may be impaired also because they're concussed. So them saying, Hey coach, I'm good. May not be enough. But if you saw, you know, a chicken wing elbow that just laid somebody out going over the middle, over the middle there, like, yeah, there's suspicion there. So you want to triage for safety. That's the most important thing. Um, then I would say the second thing is, you know, what evaluation goes into the determination of presence of concussion or not in management, that that evaluation process needs to be comprehensive and critical and take into account all these other factors we've talked about. So if you're a parent out there and you're like, Hey, Hey, what's, what's the best concussion protocol or what's the best baseline testing? Frankly, you just need to look around your community and find people with neurological expertise who can have this level of conversation, right? Whether it's on the phone or, you know, in, in clinic or, or what have you, like, um, don't allow your, yourself or your kids or your, or your the players that you're in charge of to be diagnosed with a symptom checklist or a protocol or a simple tool. You have got to have the right people in place who are, who are putting these things together and making these decisions.
1: Well, that's, uh, I've got a notepad beside me here and the pages are full. I, I can't thank you enough <laughs> for everything you've, you've brought to the table today and, uh yeah, this has been awesome. Thanks Fun. for taking the time.
0: That's awesome, Ben. And I just want to say, you know, um, thank you for what you're doing in the empower foundation. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are trying to dive into the space and make a difference. Um, and when I, when I look around and I see somebody like yourself who's been through what you've been through and, and things you're trying to do, it's all coming from, I think, the, the best place. is coming from, um, again, it's that, it's that total person concept of, oh, let's figure out what's really going on across the whole spectrum. So thanks, thanks for uh, doing what you do. Um, and then and finally, you know, I want everybody to sort of um, keep an eye open for the International Congress for Athlete Brain Health. That's the organization that I referenced earlier. Our first meeting is coming up in October. Uh, Ben, we've invited you to be there. I want you to be there as well as other patients who will help us drive this conversation. So we intend this to be no pun intended, but game changing. We, we intend this to be something that will affect the neurological care of athletes at all levels it might it happen overnight, but we have right now committed 56 experts from around the world who are coming. Um, all of whom have been selected, not for the sports that they work for. Um, or their positions in a sport or with a team, but for their experience, uh, critical thought, compassion, uh, and, and really just desire to get to the bottom of, of these issues uh, as best we can for our patients.
1: That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds Empower series. Like I said in the beginning, I encourage you to check out empower.ca, empwr.CA check it out. Check all the stuff we've got going on, all the messages we're sharing and feel free to share them yourself. Continue to spread the education and the messages. And also if you're enjoying these episodes, if you're getting something out of them, feel free to leave a positive review, subscribe and come back and also send us an email. We're happy to keep this conversation going. If there's a topic we haven't discussed yet that you want to hear more about, send us an email. Happy to chat. Alrighty. Till next time. This is the Heroic Minds Empower Series. We'll talk again soon.